today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. An iconic political figure, has, figure rather, has decided to uh, hang him up after a number of years serving this community. Hamilton Center MP David Christofferson has decided that he will not seek re-election next year in the federal election after more than 30 years of public life. Dave Christofferson joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. David, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bill. How about you? Good. Did you sleep well last night after this decision? I did. I did, especially since... For, for the uh, first I, time in 30 years? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, you know, I've uh, been wrestling with it for a while, so I've now crossed the Rubicon, and there's no going back, and there's a lot of relief in that. What uh, what led you to this, Dave, to, to, to this point where you decided that... I mean, everybody has a best-before date, but the speculation, and I, I, I think I speak for a lot of people, that figured, you know, you, this was going to be your seat for as long as you wanted it. Uh, yeah, and and I've been blessed and and uh, appreciated very much the the opportunity. Uh, you know what? It w- wasn't anything in particular. Um, I turned sixty five two weeks before the the general election. Uh, Fifteen years federally, five terms, uh, thirty three years in public life. There just there comes a natural time, Bill, when uh, when you need to hand off the torch uh, to the next generation and. Uh, and let them uh, pick it up and run with it. So it was really just a matter of, you know what? It's time. It's just time. I want to go back to uh, to 1985. I know that you actually got into politics a little bit before that when you worked for uh, the Lady and Deans, of course. But uh, when you decided to actually put throw your hat into the ring and run for public office, uh, it was, uh, as you recall back in those days, a rather tumultuous time at City Hall uh, with some, uh, some, shall we say, vibrant personalities there. <laughs> And uh, and you were one of the newcomers that got elected that year. And and uh, as a matter of fact, you were in pretty good company. Uh, a guy named Terry Cook and another fellow by the name of Dominic Agostino. Uh, were, you were the three young bucks there that were supposed to change the world. And uh, I, I just want you to go back to those days uh, and looking at some of those personalities that you had to work with in those situations. And you guys basically as green as grass for the most part. Oh, totally, totally. We we didn't we didn't know which way was up or down, or where's the washroom, what's a news conference. No, we really uh, we we didn't. And, um, and the three of us, of course, are, are very different. You know, uh, Terry's background, although he's nonpartisan now, but his background was PC. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dom's uh, dedicated, as you know, lifelong liberal, and I'm the same with the NDP. And yet, the three of us uh, had a lot in common. When you set aside that partisanship, uh, and when you, I mean, I've always maintained that when you're talking about uh, where and when to build a park, um, there's no party membership to that kind of thinking. It's strictly a local decision uh, based on, uh, on the circumstances in front of you. Uh, yeah, we landed. I mean, if you think about the folks that were around then, um, you had Henry Merling, uh, we had Tom Murray, we had John Gallagher, Don Ross. Um, um, uh, my my um, uh, award mate, uh, Sheila Cop's mum, uh, was on council. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, you're right. It was Don, very Don colorful. Dr- Don Drury, another colorful figure. Oh yeah, and and one thing about him, I've learned uh, since then, of course, after uh, years doing other things in other arenas, is that there is no better place uh, to learn about politics than the bare knuckle. Uh, dynamics of what happens around Hamilton City Council. I mean, you'll recall, Bill, back in those days, uh, there were national news stories about the explosions, the political explosions that were happening on Hamilton City Council. I mean, it was a bit of a soap opera saga that people were following, and to land in the middle of that, and of course, you'll also recall, Bill, that uh, that was the biggest turnover uh, 
if I've been time in politics, uh, they say uh, timing is everything in politics, and it really I think what that means is it's the timing of when you jump in. And I've been so lucky uh, when Terry and I landed at uh, City Council in '85. It had the biggest turnover of council, fifty percent since the years of former Mayor uh, Lloyd D. Jackson. Um, and, and, of course, then I got lucky, just to, to, to put it in context, in 90, when I was lucky enough to get elected to Queen's Park, we formed the first NDP government. And then when I landed uh, federally in 04, it was the first minority government we'd had in a quarter of a century. So it's been uh, fascinating times. Um, and uh, my experience on city council, I don't think I would have survived the politics of uh, Queen's Park and Parliament Hill if I hadn't had the opportunity to um, learn the art um, uh, at the head of Hamilton City Council, because there's just no, no better place to learn. Dave, what drew you guys together? Because, I mean, you just mentioned the fact that you and Dominic and Terry all come from different political backgrounds and different political bents, but you guys became fast friends, and that, that, that maintained itself well past your time on City Council. Oh, yeah. I mean, within 90 minutes less than of me uh, publicly announcing yesterday, uh, Terry was on the phone to me, uh, and we were talking. And you're right, when, uh, we've always maintained that friendship, and if, if Dom was still with us, uh, he'd still be a part of that. Um, I, I think what it was was... Uh, was it survival? I mean, you were the three new guys with some pretty, uh, some pretty, you know, so, there were some pretty invasive personalities on that council. I mean, you know, those yeah. were the days of fist fights in the back parking lot. There's a lot of stuff yep. going on there. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, you you spent your time there. You yeah. you understand. I think what it was again to come back to it. I I, I think the. Um, the, the common element for us was the, the values that, that we brought to council uh, vis-a-vis Hamilton's interests. And, and, we, and we were very similar in that. So while Tom, Terry, of course, being a PC, uh, had uh, those areas of interest, um, you know, his professional background was as a social worker. Um, and um, although I'm an NDP here, um, when you know, before that I was a labor leader, and quite frankly, nobody cares more about job creation and maintaining good jobs than labor leaders. And Dominic, Dominic just, you know, he bled the passion and uh, love that he had for Hamilton. So I think that's what it was, Bill. I think it was just all of us came with this, uh, a lot of ambition, no doubt about it. We were scrappy and, and ready to find our place. But uh, we, we loved Hamilton, and we wanted Hamilton to be as strong as it could be, and we shared a lot of values and a lot of similar approaches, and we respected each other. Uh, and that's, to me, that's the, uh, the, the, the currency of politics is credibility, and that shows itself with respect. And uh, the three of us uh, honestly respected each other, uh, treated, us, uh, treated each other with, with dignity, uh, and there wasn't an awful lot of that on council every day, <laughs> so it sort of stood out as something unusual. Yeah, you talked earlier about uh, the transition, and it's not unusual, as you mentioned, for people to get into the political re- arena at the municipal level. And oftentimes they will look up you know, and want to move up. And you made that decision in 1990, and, and how serendipitous was that, that you decided to run provincially? And lo and behold, uh, not only do you get elected, but you're part of the, a majority government. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I mentioned earlier that the timing in politics is everything, and I've been so blessed to arrive at, at a time of, of major change, which is always fascinating uh, in politics. 
Uh, no, listen, when I, when I ran, um, we were the third party. The uh, liberals under uh, Premier Peterson were over 50% when the election was called. Uh, there was no reason to believe that uh, history was going to show anything other than the Peterson government getting reelected with at least as big a majority, uh, possibly even bigger. My goal uh, was to uh, find myself a, a seat with Hamilton Center Provincial, um, but quite frankly, Bill, I fully expected that I was going to be in the back row of the third party underneath the burnt-out light bulb. Uh, I mean, I kind of thought that's, that's my starting place. And on election night, I, I, our victory party was at the uh, Sheridan downtown, and I spent the whole night going around the room asking people who were huddled around TVs, do we still have a majority? Uh, because I thought maybe it was like early polls coming in and, and it would change and sort out to the natural and that was just a, an, an unbelievable night, and I was just in shock. And when, when I arrived at the Sheraton, there was a, a scrum, uh, a local the journalist, and uh, they kept asking me, uh, what's it like to be part of a majority government? And up to that point, I had no idea that that's what was in the offing because I was so focused on my own riding. And then, you know, wake up the next day, and lo and behold, you're part of a majority government, um, and away we go. Yeah, but the good news was, hey, David, you got elected, and hey, you've got a majority government. The bad news is Ontario's going through one of the worst recessions that they'd had in the last 50 years. Boy, you guys really had your hands full. Yeah, you know, Bob used to say, uh, Bob Ray uh, used to say uh, from time to time around the cabinet table when we were wrestling with some of these very issues, um, and he would look around the room and he'd look at us and he'd say, you know, I wanted to be premier in the worst way, and that's exactly what I got. <laughs> <laughs> I still back then, it still does have a great sense of humor. But, yeah. but, but and by the way, for the record, because I don't have any 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 sway in this thing at all. But I mean, uh, contrary to the urban myth, uh, the re- the recession recovery that started was actually halfway through your term. It didn't wait until there was a change of government four years later. Uh, there was some pretty good economic news that was going on, but uh, there were other issues which came into that. But anyway, you stayed there for quite some time. Uh, as as a provincial member and sat there, actually served as as a deputy speaker for a while, didn't you? In the yeah, house? I did. I did, and I had a, um, a stint as a house leader too. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And, and and then the move to federal uh, did, with a natural transition for you at that stage, and uh, and moving on. I want, to, I want to ask you one particular thing about this, because people that don't know a lot about politics, except for around election time, we, we tend to get our interests up for that sort of thing, Dave. But maybe they watch Question Period, or, you know, and, uh, about what's happening provincially or in the, the federal legislature. And, and obviously it looks like a bunch of kids that, that are on Ritalin, or should be on Ritalin anyway. It gets a little crazy. But the thing is, the reality here is that oftentimes you guys will, will argue like tigers back and forth along each other, and when it's all over, you guys are out for a coffee or a beer. There's a, there's a, a kinship there that, uh, with people that are in elected office, both provincially and federally, isn't there? There is. And, uh, I mean, you and I, Bill, I mean, you served, I've served. Um, there, you feel that because you've walked in those shoes, and you, you know both the honor and the stress of being an elected person uh, in Canada. And, and one of the things I've enjoyed is reaching across the aisle and getting to know people. I mean, some of my closest political friendships have been with people who were not members of my party. Uh, federally, uh, my very good friend, Mario Boulanger, the late Mario Boulanger, mm-hmm. who died not long ago and was instrumental in uh, private legislation that uh, upgraded our, uh, our national anthem to, to be more reflective of current values. Um, 
and and him and I were very close through our work with the Canada Africa Parliamentary Association. And he, you know, he like me. I was a diehard NDP. He was a diehard uh, liberal. And and yet, you know, we we uh, we put that aside uh, when we were done the active politics, and then we went on and had again shared value system. I mean, it's. Uh, and and having that friendship and having that respect across the aisle means so much because some of the highlights uh, that I've personally experienced where were when either at city council or in particular provincial or federal parliaments when the whole house is able to set those things aside and rise to the occasion and show Ontarians or Canadians that yeah look we can do the schoolyard stuff and we can look like fools and we can play all the dumb antics that go with politics but you know what when it comes down to the stuff that really matters to Canadians we unite and stand together as we are now in terms of facing what's going on from the US uh, I haven't changed my thoughts about liberals or the liberal government uh, uh, because of the trade issue. But on the trade issue, when it comes to where do I stand in terms of my country and my prime minister versus the assault we're under, make no question, I don't care what party they belong to. That's my prime minister and it's my country. And when you rise to that occasion, it's a great feeling because it, it does show you that, that, that the elected people have that ability to reflect the the higher honor um, that I think Canadians strive for when we deal with these big life and death issues and and identity issues in terms of Canada and our place in the world and I love that feeling and and you can't get that if you're still being petty with each other and sniping and heckling one another when you're not only in the house but now walking down the hall to a committee meeting and you're still sniping at each other it, it doesn't make that possible so you have to have that ability. And quite frankly, Bill, in my opinion, those that don't find the way to do that lose so much out of what uh, the parliamentary experience is for us citizens that I'm soon about to become again, uh, who are given that unique honor uh, to be elected, a Canadian elected representative. That's a heck of a thing. So what's next, Dave? I mean, after all these years, uh, uh, I've read the press release, the the issue that you sent out yesterday, and it says you're walking away from public life. I had one person ask me, is he going to run for mayor this year? And I said, it says stepping away from public life, and being the mayor is very public, too. Are you done with politics as far as you're concerned? Yeah, I mean, you touched on my only Achilles heel. Um, It's the the mayor. I make no, you know, still no bones about the fact that uh, if I had had an opportunity, uh, a wish list to do one thing, I would love, would love to have been uh, the mayor of our beautiful city. And I envy those fellow Hamiltonians who who have that opportunity to serve. Um, But I, you know, 2003, I took my shot. I put my name out there. Uh, Hamiltonians made their decision, and and that was no, and uh, and they went in a different direction. Um, That's the hardest one, and um, even my wife is a little bit nervous about the fact that there's still a couple of weeks left before nominations close. Um, but uh, I have made the decision that uh, I, uh, I I am done with with public life to the extent that it it is that time, and I really believe it's important for me to to hand off the torch uh, to that uh, uh, next generation of Hamiltonians who will do a fantastic job and a much better job than I could ever have done. Um, but but I, I just don't, I just don't see you sitting on the rocking chair on your front porch watching the world go by, though. No, fair enough. No, I, um, I, I, I do have plans to continue 
with uh, some of the work that I've begun internationally with uh, emerging democracies and in particular areas of um, transparency and accountability around Auditor General Public Accounts Committee systems. Uh, I've already done some work uh, in Myanmar, Jamaica, and I was in Ghana doing workshops with their uh, Public Accounts Committee through the Canadian Audit and Accountability Foundation, of which um, I've been asked to join as the Board of Directors. And so uh, I kinda, it kind of makes sense, Bill. There's nowhere to run for an international seat, <laughs> but I'd like to take all this experience and, and put it to good use at the international level. So I think what's going to happen, Bill, is the, this last part of my, my uh, active working life, um, I, will, you know, I'm, I went from local union leader, city hall, uh, provincial, federal, it just makes sense that, uh, that I spend a few years internationally, and that's where I want to focus, on emerging democracies, electoral systems, and um, auditor general reports and public accounts committee. Turns out, Bill, that just by lasting long enough, I'm, I'm uh, arguably the longest-serving member on a public accounts committee in the entire Commonwealth. And so there's a lot of, you know, experience there to pass on, given the importance of the work that uh, public accounts committees do with auditor general reports. And we all know the importance of auditor general reports. So that's what I'm looking at, and, um, and I hope that maybe, maybe there's uh, room for me to make uh, just a little bit more contribution uh, on the international stage. Well, uh, maybe stepping down from elected office, but certainly uh, we're not going to hear the end of David Christofferson, I'm sure. David, uh, congratulations on a great career, and I know we'll be talking a lot more in the future about uh, future endeavors. Thanks for this today. Oh, thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. And thanks for all you do for the community, too, Bill. Great talking with you again, Dave. Thanks. David Christofferson, uh, NDP MP for Hamilton Center, announcing he will not be seeking re-election in uh, next year's federal election. Uh, that's a whole different conversation about who may fill that role. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton's uh, entertainment facilities include, of course, First Ontario Centre, a.k.a. Cops Coliseum, uh, Hamilton Place, the Ron Joyce uh, Centre, and, of course, the uh, Hamilton Convention Centre. Those are the three big ones. They are owned by the city. But uh, in their wisdom some years ago, City Council decided, look, we probably shouldn't be running this. Good move. Uh, and they decided to find outside management for this. And uh, for the last little while, it has been Spectra Management, actually out of Philadelphia, that has been managing the arena and the uh, the concert hall. And, of course, the Carmen's Group has been managing the uh, convention center. Uh, that's, that's, okay, that's history. That's prologue. Now, that contract is up at the end of this year. So uh, a number of people obviously think, well, may, maybe we should make a change. Maybe there's somebody that can do something better. And, and you have to partner this with the idea that we all know that all of those facilities uh, need a makeover. They're tired. They're old. Uh, some are suggesting they should be replaced. Uh, there's not a whole lot of money to do any of that sort of thing. So they were thinking, uh, hey, if we are going to change the management group, maybe we can find somebody who might even be able to help us along with some of that stuff. Well, I'm told that there is a, a report that's going to go before council uh, next week sometime that essentially says, no, just leave things the way they are. We'll just extend the contracts of the people that are there. I'm not so sure. As a matter of fact, I know that that's not the best solution here. I want to bring uh, P.J. Mercanti back into the conversation. He is the CEO of the Carmen's Group, of course. And uh, we talked with uh, P.J. back in February when he made it known to council that uh, he and the Carmen's Group were willing to take over all three facilities. And they had some rather interesting ideas and plans. P.J. joins us on the uh, Bill Keller Show to talk about this. P.J., thanks so much for the time. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you, Bill. I know. Look, between running these facilities and running all the Carmen stuff and your baseball team now up at Bernie Arbor, I don't know how you find the time, but I appreciate you joining us today. 
Absolutely. There's no boring days, but uh, but we like it that way. That's that's for sure. Now, have you talked to the city? Of, when we talked about this way back in February, you know, you were going to put some plans together. You were going to write a letter. I know you talked to some of the councillors about it then. Uh, and I don't know, have you heard anything from the city about where that is going and what they intend to do? So we've learned that a, uh, that a you know, the city's agenda, or the meeting uh, council agenda has gone public, uh, and it's right now on the on the city's website. Had a chance to to skim through it quickly, and I know that it's going to be discussed uh, next week at council. And and uh, we believe that there is uh, that there is uh, some language in the in the agenda and in the staff report that that uh, that shares that there could be a, a potential. Uh, for a uh, you know a shorter term uh, extension of the existing contracts that will give the city an opportunity to explore uh, you know a different arrangement for the uh, the management of the of the venues. But we know that next week uh, at city council it will be uh, very uh, interesting and important for the uh, the future of these facilities. What do you think of that recommendation? Uh, we stated that we would participate in any process ultimately that the city put forward and uh, and and we will accept their invitation if if we are are formally invited to to put forward a uh, a bid of some sort uh, for uh, for management of any form we will happily participate and and you know at the end of the day uh, we know and we're confident in our ability to deliver uh, deliver you know great results for the city uh, we've demonstrated our capacity uh, with the operation of the convention center, and and we know that that we can deliver uh, outstanding value with the operation of First Ontario Center and Concert Hall. Uh, we're very proud that uh, that you know Scott Warren, who has successfully operated the venues for the past five years, is is on our team, and and you know he's done a, a very competent and capable job uh, with those venues. Uh, and we're equally pleased that Oakview Group uh, is supporting our, 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 you know, our bid, and has agreed to work uh, work uh, for us in our in our pursuit of that. And they bring a lot of clout to the table with facility management uh, content as well. So, so we're confident in our ability to deliver outstanding value in the short term uh, for the for the taxpayers of Hamilton uh, and for the city as a whole, because you know over and above the potential subsidy reductions that we could bring to the table. We want to continue to drive content and continue to build community and, and, and uh, you know, check off all the boxes, uh, you know, in that regard. Uh, so, so we're just hoping to get a crack at these for the short term uh, and then start the conversation, start the dialogue about what does the next generation look like. And obviously that's a much bigger, broader conversation, but we believe that the time is now to start that, the facilities are aging. Uh, they, you know, if, if Hamilton uh, wants to compete on a on a national scale, we need to find a solution, uh, a long term solution for these for these venues, and uh, and at least get the ball rolling. You know, time has a funny way of slipping away on us, and if we don't uh, start conversations early, then then it will slip away. So we want to just prod, you know, that conversation, you know, around the next generation, and hope that uh, that the city uh, reacts favorably. To that. Well, and that's the concern I had, and I know in our conversation back last February, PJ, I think we touched on that point, is that the status quo here is not going to solve anything. I mean, and that's not a shot at, at Spectra. They, they've done a, a pretty decent yeah. job. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but their job is to manage. And and when when you talked to us in February, uh, you you basically said, look, we can do that. In other words, all those connections that and uh, that, that Spectra has to be able to bring in some top notch talent. Your organization can do the same thing now because of the, of the way that you've reached out. But you were gonna. This is value added. I mean, because we need to talk about those facilities themselves. And and mm-hmm. I, to my knowledge, Spectre has not come out and said we want to be a partner. Hey, we'll we'll kick in some money to do an upgrade or build a new arena. Uh, but you guys are, are willing to have that conversation for sure. And 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 they're not in the business necessarily. No, that's uh, it. They're a management group. That, right? Yeah, they're not investors. They're a management group. And uh, and the difference with us is that you know we are obviously I'm I'm a proud Hamiltonian as as is the entire Mercanti family, the Carmens group. Obviously, Scott uh, has adopted uh, you know Hamilton as, as as his home city, and so. We're proud Hamiltonians. We want to build this community. We want to, to uh, you know, look to the future. You know, I've got I've got children uh, that live here, and and you know, I'm thinking of you know the venues that they're going to be attending concerts when they're in their teenage years and 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 older. So so we're all about starting you know the conversation around that next generation because the time is going to sneak up on us. But but in terms of the booking side of it, and I'm happy that you brought that up. Uh, Oakview Group, our you know our our partner uh, with this initiative, you know has a very strong relationship with a lot of the concert promoters, uh, including Live Nation. Oakview Group and Live Nation are are partners. You know everywhere that you know everywhere that they uh, you know that Oakview Group is, Live Nation is is also uh, a, a partner and a supporter of, of their efforts too. And Irving Azoff, who is the who is the uh, one of the principal uh, partners in Oakview Group, uh, runs the management company for. A lot of the you know the first uh, you know class acts like Bon Jovi and and a, and a whole slew of others. So so you know we're confident that we can continue to, to to drive content. You know Scott has great great relationships in the industry and has demonstrated obviously with you know with the last five years of of, of content he's booked into those facilities. He's he's demonstrated and you know that we can de- continue to, to deliver that great content. So so we're hoping just to get to get a crack bill all right so this, this and again this, the staff report is going to simply say let's extend the contracts uh and the b- thing that bothers me about this among many things is that the city has a propensity sometimes uh, to simply kick things down the road and think i yeah, will deal with this some other time uh and and they do that with so many other issues uh and as you say time is money and and this mm-hmm. may be the best possible time to to have this conversation we know these facilities are tired. We know that they either need to be replaced or upgraded significantly. And that, I think, needs to be part of the conversation. The, we all know this, PJ. No, the city can't do it by itself. And they're not going to get money from the federal or provincial government to do any of this stuff. So they better find some partners. And this seems to me an ideal opportunity to explore that. So my, my first question to the councillors, and I'll certainly ask them when I get them on the program, is why aren't you looking into this? Why aren't you asking for proposals? Why aren't you getting details? For sure, and 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 we respect that this is a a big conversation. You know, it's it's obviously very political, and uh, and you know, and we just want to 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 let council know that there is a real appetite from our partners on you know on exploring you know the bigger picture side of 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 these facilities in terms of you know renovation or or, or you know what does that precinct uh, plan look like? Um, but the other important thing that that is worth you know acknowledging and mentioning. Uh, is that you know we also want to you know look to, t- towards providing the city immediate savings, and every day past January first, the city will be spending money on a subsidy that they otherwise may not 
have to, or as much money on a subsidy that they otherwise may not have to. So, so every day that this is delayed, uh, taxpayers are paying more than they need to. And, and so that's why we're hopeful that that council will, will, you know, potentially, uh, explore, you know, the shortest window of time on an extension of, of, you know, a contract so that that way we can kind of get into the, you know, the real potential savings that, that the city can enjoy in the short term. Uh, you know, right now, and I believe the staff report contemplated a six-month extension uh, for, the, for the facilities. But like I said, every day past January 1st, the city is spending more uh, than they need to on that subsidy. So we, wanna, we want to uh, get an opportunity uh, if council so chooses to be able to, uh, you know, put our numbers in and, and go from there. Because, I, I mean, it sounds like I tried to bring up the old cliche, but time is money. And, and this is what it really comes down to. And the city, as you say, is, is spending money on a subsidy that maybe they don't have to if they could find a different partnership. And, and, and it, again, it's this idea that, well, 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 we'll look into this. Let's set this down. The report about the condition of the facilities has been sitting on that desk for almost, what, a year and a half, two years? The one that uh, Jasper Kajavsky uh, kind of championed and, and you guys and a bunch of other, Ron Joyce and others, were all contributors to that. Uh, so it's not as if we have to have the debate about whether or not we need to do something. It's what are we going to do and with whom. And it just I, I, I get frustrated when these guys just say, well, we'll deal with this in six or eight months. Uh, I mean, sure. you know, if you guys ran your business like that, <laughs> I'd, I'd hate to think of what's going to happen. Sometime you have to put it in gear and put the pedal to the metal and say we're going. And, no, and, and, and uh, you know, if they won't do it, then I'm hoping somebody in the private sector like you guys are going to take the initiative and say let's get this done. Because it's not just you. And it's not just the taxpayers. I mean, you know, there's a guy that owns a hockey team in town here, Mr. Andelard, who would love to have that conversation with some people. And he's already said, I got my checkbook out. Who are we going to play with? And, uh, and the city is just twiddling their thumbs. And, and we, we understand that the city has a lot of priorities on, the, you know, on, their, on their dockets. And there's a lot of issues that they're having to, to deal with and a lot of facilities in their portfolio. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, we were hoping that the letters that uh, that I had sent to to the uh, to the mayor's office and to city council was going to just ignite the conversation to make sure that this is a priority, uh, because the, at the at the end of the day, uh, you know, these facilities drive so much economic uh, value for the city of Hamilton. When there are concerts, when the arena and the theater are full. Uh, there's people staying in hotels, restaurants are filled. Uh, when there's conventions in town, you know, the hotels are filled, restaurants, you know, all the art galleries along James Street are, are, are filled. So there, there's tremendous uh, economic and cultural value for these facilities. And, and if the city of Hamilton wants to compete with the, the rest of Canada, we need to look at these facilities and, 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 and figure out what does that uh, long-term solution look like we you know we are still losing out on national events that are going to Halifax that are going to Winnipeg that are going to Quebec City and other other I want to call them you know mid mid-level cities across Canada um, that you know I'm, I'm a proud Hamiltonian Bill you're a proud Hamiltonian you know I, I like to see it when when Hamilton is in the national spotlight hosting big events and big conventions and exciting, exciting, uh, you know, things uh, that, that, that bring attention to our city. So we need to make sure that we've got the facilities that reflect the kind of city that we're aspiring to be. 
Well, and, and there's something even more elementary than that, PJ. We own them. They're, they're city-owned. This, yeah. this is not some private guy that says, hey, build me a new arena. You know, they, they, we own the buildings. And when we talk about infrastructure deficits in the city, that's part of it. Those are buildings mm-hmm. that if we don't do something with, they're going to fall apart and they're going to be worth zero. And, and we're uh, the poorer four because we, the taxpayers, are going to have to foot the bill. And uh, you, you, to your point, I've seen this. I mean, I was in Winnipeg for Grey Cup a few years ago, and I've seen their new convention center. It's spectacular. Last year, we were up in Ottawa at the convention center right beside the Western Hotel downtown Ottawa. It's incredible. Of course, we know what the ones are like in Toronto down by the Rogers Center, the Scotiabank Center, I guess it is now. We can't compete with that. But we're going to have to, or we're going to lose money. That's all there is to it. And you have to admit the fact that as much as we all remember, you know, s- sentimentally about the you know, opening up Cops Coliseum, the anticipation of getting a hockey team, it's old, it's tired. It either needs to be replaced or totally retrofitted. And the, the, every minute that we do decide, well, well, we'll think about that and get to it later, it's going to cost more. You're absolutely right. And then there's a lot of money being spent right now on just the maintenance and and just, you know, basic upgrades to, to keep them just viable or alive. But, but you know, I, I don't think we're the type of city that, that just wants a status quo viable and alive solution for these facilities. We need to, we need to, to, to really look at what is that more permanent solution uh, that needs to be put in place. And, 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 and you're right, you know, the, the, you know, these facilities are costing a lot of money um, more than they need to. They are dated. They are 30, 40 years old. Uh, they're, you know, well past their, their, their useful life in their existing state. So we need to, we need to really look at that more, that more permanent solution and, uh, and, and, and attract those big, big events that we, that we certainly could be and, 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 and provide the types of amenities that a, that a Michael Andlauer and the Hamilton Bulldogs you know, want to see and need to see for for their fan experiences. You know, for their player, you know, player uh, satisfaction as well. Um, so, so you know, starting that conversation, Bill, is 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 you know, was the spirit of the the initial letter, providing the the immediate subsidy, potential subsidy reductions uh, to to help with the general levy was you know another another key priority. But ultimately, you know, bringing the type of partners to the table that can help push this uh, story forward around the around the renovation um, is 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 you know is the is the ultimate but that ultimate starts focus. PJ that starts with the process and it, if the staff report is simply saying look and extend these contracts for another six or seven months or whatever it's going to be I, I get that I'm not suggesting they just hand the keys over to you although I wouldn't think that would be a bad idea but there is a process that needs to be followed so if they're going to mm-hmm. extend these things I, I'd like to see somebody on council stand up and say okay we'll do that under the proviso that we also ask for an expression of interest from other parties that want to do this, including your group and, and whoever else may be out there. In other words, get the ball rolling. They don't seem to know that. They don't seem to get that. Mm-hmm. And 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 we're you know we're hopeful that when this is discussed around the council table, that uh, that you know some of the councillors will will speak to the benefits of starting the process sooner. And uh, and you know the the staff report uh, you know is is written and that's you know that's you know obviously an important an important uh, you know first step in the process, uh, but we are hopeful that uh, that some of the counselors will see the merit to to pushing this up on the agenda timing wise uh, because you know like I you know like I shared every day past January first the city's spending more on a subsidy that they otherwise 
wouldn't have to spend. And, and, so, and look at I understand that the, the, one of the easy replies here is going to be, well, you know, there's an election in October. Maybe we should wait till after that. No, 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 no. You don't put it in cruise control. Okay, guys, you still have a job to do right up until October 22nd, and this is part of the job. PJ, I, sure. I hope I hope they're listening. I hope this uh, gets discussed thoroughly when it goes before the the committee next week. And uh, I'd like to think that they're going to give an opportunity for folks like you and others that uh, think they've got a better plan to actually put that on the table so we can have that comparison. Uh, as always, thanks so much for the, uh, the the time today, and uh, continue good luck. I know we'll stay in touch as we go forward on this. You got it. Thank you very much, Bill. Take care. P.J. McCanny, CEO of the Carmen's Group. Uh, next week, council is going to deal with that. And please, somebody at city council, let's take some initiative here, okay, instead of just kicking things down the road. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We all know that uh, marijuana will be legal in this country as of October. That was passed through the uh, Senate and the House of Commons, of course, uh, before they broke for their summer recess. But uh, the prime minister says, well, it's going to take a little while to get things organized, so it's going to be October before legalization is actually going to be there for us and for the businesses. However, uh, pot shops continue to, to pop up. As a matter of fact, and, and this is a true fact, that's all we talk about on this show, there are more pot shops in Hamilton apparently now than there are Tim Horton stores. I wouldn't make that up. Uh, about 80 of them so far, and I believe uh, there are only 74 locations of Tim Horton, only 74 Tim Hortons around here. Anyway, uh, it's supposed to be illegal. So what's going on? Uh, how are police handling this? And how are these uh, business folks that are opening these shops feeling about this? Uh, a little antsy or they get anticipation? Because we, why, they don't, this, they, we just don't know how this is going to roll out here in Ontario, especially because there's been a change in government. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Clint Young, CEO of MMJ Canada. Uh, Clint, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you on the show again. Thanks, Bill. How are you? I'm top of the world, living the dream. Everything's going great with us here. How's, how, first of all, how's business? Fantastic. Um, you know, it was uh, it was good news uh, with the PCs winning. Um, you know, with MMJ Canada anyways, I, I can't speak on behalf of other brands. We are sure. very, very looking forward to uh, legalization. Um, we have positioned our company uh, with multiple revenue streams to, to move forward into reg, uh, into uh, legalization and with regulations. Um, yeah, we've, we've stretched out a long way all across Canada, and we're really excited. What kind of response are you getting from those communities? Um, it's Well, it's great. Like, you know, uh, Bill, anyways, Hamilton has been phenomenal, uh, all the way from the policing to the city councillors uh, to the, the actual community. has been amazingly receptive, believe it or not, and... Uh, you are correct. Uh, I, I don't know if the, the Tim Hortons thing uh, might be correct, but I know that the last time, and I, I used to have a list, but there was 57 dispensaries, and regardless if it is or, or not more than Tim Hortons, it is the capital or per capita in Canada. It's the most uh, dispensaries in all of Canada in one city. Well, I know Tevye Moore from The Spectator actually did a piece on this, and uh, he, uh, I guess he did a head count. I don't know how he came up with this. But uh, and, and by the way, you're absolutely right. I mean, they, he counted 80, but not all of them are open at this stage. But, I mean, they are on the premises there. Uh, and there's uh, 80, of, uh, 80 dispensaries at this stage and 74 locations of uh, Timmy's. So, uh, uh, yeah, you're number one. Uh, who who would have thought that was going to happen? But I want to, I, I, you, when you and I talked about this last time, uh, t- let's talk about policing right now because technically this is still illegal. But we know yeah. it's coming. We know it's going to be legal. I mean, the debate's over. The, the bills have been signed. Everything's good. So are, yeah. are they still charging? Are they are they hassling you? What's well, going on here? Well, there's not, you know, Bill, we really haven't had anything in, in, in a long time, to be honest with you, about over a year. Uh, yeah, about a year. And, uh, and you know, I, we had something happen in Toronto, but that was the first time we'd actually ever been raided 
uh, in Toronto in the three years we were open. We, we, we dodged Project Claudia. They didn't come near us on anything. And, and finally, Detective Lou just said, you know, there's, we can't stall it anymore. We got to come to the lo- Toronto location. I just said, okay, you know, you got to do what you got to do. It's part of the process. But Hamilton's been, you know, I, I spoke to about four cops the other day. They, uh, I, I was behind Monster Truck's um, uh, jam space there, and I was kind of looking for Photoshop spaces, and four cops pulled in, and, you know, we just started talking, and it was a, a great conversation, and they talked about, you know, legalization moving forward and how they've kind of laid off on cannabis, and, you know, I, I was educating them on my half and things like that. And, you know, the police have always been great. When I hear people speak negatively about the enforcement in the city i think to myself you guys are crazy like the fact on how kind they've been that every every person that's ever been charged with mmj canada and i believe in most companies all their charges have been dropped minus mine and that's probably because there's a media pull behind it so the crown attorney wants to go forward but they're still offering five thousand dollar fine but they want me to keep my drug trafficking record which i said no to so, but everybody else has got peace bonds. Nobody's been charged. Uh, judges do not agree. There was a major disconnect between the government saying we're illegal and what the courts were viewing us. Um, and with October 17th coming forward and a new government, I think it really puts the policing in a scenario where they have to sit back and watch, see what Doug Ford does. They also have to understand that the money that's going to be allotted from the province on regulating cannabis and enforcing it, I don't know if it's going to be policing anymore, Bill. I think what they're going to do is, is probably go, and that's if they try to eliminate dispensaries, say this is worst case, I see them going after the landlords. Because now that the law is written in, you can follow through with these fines and evictions and cease and desists. Now, you know, there's ways you can constitutionally challenge these things if you're operating medicinally and only serving to medical health care to the patients. It's going to become a bit of a pickle if they go the route that people don't want them to go, which is, you know, completely uh, following through with winds, atrocious. Yeah, do you uh, think, do you really think that's going to happen, though, Clint? Well, I don't know. Because I, I, I know, I know when you talked before, this is before the provincial election, uh, there yeah. was a great deal of nervousness and trepidation on not just your part, but other people in the industry, uh, because yeah. they said, look, this is going to be done through the LCBO, and, and, and the inference there was that, well, you guys are going to get shut down, and, and you're going to yeah. be illegal, and this is, this is going to yeah. be big problems. Uh, and you're right. I mean, Mr. Ford so far uh, hasn't really developed a policy on this, but he says he's open nope. to suggestion. And, and I don't know yeah. where that's going to lead you, but it, it gives you a glimmer of hope. Yeah. And, you know, when I heard him say consultations are open, that's fantastic. That, you know, um, I've been working with Larry Deany. Uh, he's consulting for me and helping me, you know, uh, meet politicians and city councillors and things like that. And it's always good to know that Doug Ford and his, you know, his cabinet and even Donna Skelly, who's PC and, uh, in, in Hamilton here, she was very receptive. I got to sit with her for about a half an hour, and I don't have any doubts, Bill. Like, I mean, I, I've, I've positioned myself where if worst-case scenario happens, we have options. Now, I can't speak for other dispensaries, especially because I don't believe they're structured the way I am. I don't think they've ever gone to the level that I have with benefits, taxing, you know, CFOs, COOs, chief strategist officers uh, applying in different provinces. I don't know if they, they've gone to this extent. But I know for us that there shouldn't be any fear with MMJ Canada staff because I think that our message has been the same for two years. Mental health and cannabis. We haven't broken our message. We've been very consistent. And I believe that although we do have to get painted with the same brush when it comes to authority until legalization happens, I do believe and have been told that we do set a standard and we are recognized as a little bit different. So well, I'm, I'm confident. What I hope is, is happening is you're being recognized as a legitimate industry. 
And yeah. because that's happening, whether people like it or not, and they can agree or disagree, I mean, that's, they've got yep. that right to do so. But, I mean, yeah. it's happening, and it's happening all around us. I mean, we were up in Collingwood last weekend, and there's this <laughs> great big, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. just outside yeah. of Collingwood, between Collingwood and Blue Mountain, there was this great big, huge construction <laughs> site going on. And I talked yeah. to him, my friend up there, and he says, yeah, that's, that's going to be a marijuana plant. It's going to be yeah. a processing plant. And I said, you're kidding. He says, no, this is a legitimate business, and they're popping up all over the place. We know about the controversy about Nancaster, and we'll, we'll let that go for the time being. But <laughs> but it's on the stock exchange now. I know you yeah. know people, legitimate friends of mine, and, and that are, you know, they're calling their stock broker and saying, look, at, this is what we want to invest in. And by the way, oh, they're yeah. all doing quite well, those stocks. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing, Bill. Like, you know, uh, you know the f- fact is, is that the demonizing of cannabis is not working anymore. The fear campaigns, the government ads, the naysayers, the negative people towards cannabis, it doesn't matter anymore because it's, it's, been, so, it's been so publicized now that people, like, this is what the government and, and, and negative people seem to forget, that the average human being isn't as dumb as they're treated. And people are investigating and people are reading up, whether it's CBD, THC, the medicinal benefits, even the, the harmless benefits of it being retail, comparing it to cigarettes or cupcakes or food or whatever and, and, and with it, when it comes to regulations, I think people know that this plant truly is harmless. And I think it's going to take really, really, uh, pardon me, it's going to take a lot to really convince people otherwise uh, that it is dangerous. And, and I think that moving forward into regulations and legalization, you're seeing this being more publicized. I'm, like I seen a, a commercial the other day and I was like, what? A commercial already? Like it was impressive. It's like you're right, Bill. It's coming. There's nothing anyone can do. People either need to accept this as a fact. Like when I hear people complaining, well, the smell, the smell. Well, restaurants have smells too when they're cooking a certain type of food. They're regulated. You can't complain about that. Cannabis is going to have to be treated the same way, whether it's dispensaries, whether it's just LCBO or the, pardon me, the OCS, which, you know, I really do believe a mixed model will be coming. I think we need to be patient and just be smart about the whole scenario and you know, I don't think anybody should be throwing punches. Nobody should be throwing punches at the government. Uh, we shouldn't be throwing punches at licensed producers. Uh, we shouldn't be throwing punches at each other on our side. And we should kind of really stop the infighting and see how we can make this system function and work a lot more smoothly than what Wynn had set it up uh, with her regulations. Well, and again, and it may well involve the LCBO. We don't know that yet. Uh, I, I, would, they, I would think, so, though. They should. Yeah, I would think, Cliff, that maybe the solution here is a hybrid where, where yeah, yeah. It's, it's going to be available there, just like beer and wine is available in other yeah. places besides the LCBO if you choose to do that. Because I, I can't see them shutting down what is turning out to be a pretty profitable industry. It'll, it'll never shut down, Bill. The OCS, the Ontario Cannabis Store, that was never, if I came across that way, I apologize. Uh, I've always promoted a mixed model. I strongly believe government needs a little bit of a stronghold on the market to make sure that people are following regulations, taxes, all that nonsense, you know, the typical business stuff. But at the same time, I don't think we should be eliminated. And I've always said what you just said, a hybrid private and mixed model or uh, public and private model um, is what needs to happen. Government stores and then craft stores. Collective Arts Brewery exists. So does the beer store and the LCBO. That can be the exact same scenario in cannabis if Doug Ford decides to kind of fix what was broken now i see him maybe letting this play out a little on her end with win because then he can go see how bad she screwed up and then he can fix it like i don't know if it's going to be an instant fix bill but 
I do see things changing uh, for the positive moving forward into legalization. I, I got to ask you because the the big question from those who still feel uncomfortable about this whole thing, yeah. Clint, say, look at yeah. how are you going to keep it out of the hands of, of underage people that can walk and, and and purchase this stuff? And my my short answer, I mean, you're the guy in the industry, but my short answer to them yeah. is usually uh, under the same guise as we do with alcohol and, and beer and wine. I mean, you don't sell that to cigarettes. Same thing. Yeah, there are restrictions yeah. in place, and yeah, there's going to be an element of self policing in this, but I mean, that's going to be up to the industry and of course there will be inspections as there are with those sorts of facilities exactly it'll be like secret shoppers bill like you know when you go into you know when you yeah i I don't know if you ever had a variety store gig but you see the guy working at the variety store there's people that go in and uh you know see if they're checking id and they're secret shoppers to find out if they're doing their job that will happen in cannabis now you know let's be honest and you know i think that a lot of people, like when it comes to booze, cigarettes, uh, anything that we're doing now, gambling, to say, to call them the sins. These things that we're doing and it being regulated, you're going to get the kid who's going to stand outside the liquor store, Bill, on Upper Gate there and hide by the food, the food basics and go, hey, man, can you get me a bottle of beer? You're going to get that guy who's going to go get them. That's going to happen in cannabis. It's going to happen with cigarettes. But I think it's becoming few and far between, and I think the way that uh, the LC, pardon me, the OCS will be run, the LCBO. I think if you look at examples like MMJ Canada, Pacifico, Seven Point Society, when you go into these style of dispensaries, you get the gears. Like it's a, it's a lot of, it's a lot to get into my stores. You see the doctor, we check ID. If you're not over 19, you can't come in. You can't even speak about purchasing for other people. Like it'll, it'll definitely, it'll definitely be a lot smoother than what I think people will assume. I just think the government needs to keep their standpoint on strictness about this because that's their role in this whole piece. Well, and the government seems to have had their head around this anyway, don't you think? I mean, from the reaction yeah. that you're getting from the federal government now uh, yeah. and even from the, well, the newly minted provincial government. I mean, it's it's not a matter of, you know, should we do this? It's a matter of how are we going to do this and how are we going to make it yeah. work for everybody? Yes, exactly. And, you know, and I think, I think that the fact that, that you're even hearing things like that, Bill, like from when we last talked about a year and a half ago, I think you're hearing things now, like the conversation switched from when we last talked. It was dispensaries are bad and cannabis is dangerous and keep it away from the children and it's all organized crime. And now you're hearing the topics of how do we include these people? What do we do with dispensaries? Uh, you know, let's let's get a proper regulation set. Let's get proper standards set. Let's protect the kids, but let's not demonize it. They're being more realistic and they're they're publicizing it more. So you're seeing the the... You're seeing the stigma being broken slowly and slowly. Like, I won't, I can't wait until we have this conversation again, Bill, and it's a year and a half, and watch the difference again and change. It's it's almost night and day since we last talked. Well, it is, and, and it's amazing what a piece of legislation can do. And, 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 and to that point, though, I mean, there was a, a fulsome debate about this uh, in the Senate and, and, of course, in the House of Commons, and, and questions were asked, and I think that put a lot of the stuff on the public record. And, uh, uh, yeah. And that, that's why I think you've seen this uh, a lot more acceptance uh, than, than probably you were even hoping for at this stage. Uh, yeah. It's it's yeah. continuing, and things are happening on this. Clint, as uh, this process unfolds, uh, we'll continue to stay in touch and uh, see how things are going. But I really do appreciate you taking some time for us today. No problem, Bill. Thank you very much for having me, and everybody have a wonderful day. You too. Clint Young, the CEO for MMJ Canada, uh, talking about the imminent uh, legalization, which will be coming, as we mentioned, in the middle of October uh, and in the meantime, uh, well, business seems to be good. And I'm not kidding. I mean, uh, uh, people that are investing in this stuff, it's a legitimate item on the stock exchange now. 
And uh, it's making a lot of money for folks. It's a growth industry. Excuse the pun. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.